Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Chavez. Uh, years ago, there was a, um, there was a, I don't know what they call it, a docudrama, biopic, whatever. Anyways, um, it was, it was a uh, fictional documentary of sorts on the life of, um, in the sports world, um, a very well-known person, and his name was Herb Brooks. Herb Brooks was um, the coach of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team that won the gold medal, defeated the Soviets, but they didn't actually defeat the Soviets to win the gold. They defeated the Swedes <laughs> for the gold, but it was considered to be a seminal moment because back then, you all remember, that the uh, Soviet team, um, quote-unquote, violated the, Oli the Olympic principles that they said that they were only permitting non-professionals, amateurs, to compete. But in fact, all the people were, um, were being paid by the Russian army, and in fact, they were professional athletes. But that's an aside. Anyways, Herb Brooks uh, basically um, imparted a thought as to how to beat the Soviets. And he said, rather than doing it the way that the NHL used to do it, which was to hit and fight and grind people down, he looked for college players who could skate with the Russians. And the rest, of course, is known to you. I don't know if Herb Brooks actually said this line. I have looked, I have not found. But at the very end of the movie, Herb Brooks, who was played in the movie by Kurt Russell, and he did a fantastic job of it, is said to quote Herb Brooks in this, that um, effective after that team won the gold medal, that years later, of course, now they permit professional athletes to compete in the Olympics. And he said, and in fact, you know, in the, in the basketball and in other, in other, in, in the basketball competition during the Olympics, they assemble what's called the dream team where they take the very best of all the professional athletes. And Brooks was supposed to have said, now that we have dream teams, no one dreams anymore. The reason why I thought of this is because this week's Torah portion, that being Parshat Vayigash, which is the second to last of Bereshit, but in fact, something comes to an end in this parsha, this Torah portion, that never rears its head again throughout the remainder of the Torah. But the one small exception, and I would make an argument that it's not relevant. And that is, at the very end of this week's Torah portion, we read of Jacob Yaakov having a marot laila, a image in the night, a dream, and we no longer hear of dreams anymore. It is remarkable to consider that for the large bulk of Sefer Bereshit of the book of Genesis, you could easily argue that the most dominant features of the book of Genesis is the God of creation and the power of dreams. Starting with Abraham, Abraham having his dream at the Brit Habtarim, at the dream, at the, at the ceremony of the covenant, followed followed certainly by Jacob having a succession of dreams, not the least being of a stairway to heaven when he escapes and runs away from home. Jacob himself repeatedly had dreams. And then, of course, we come to the beloved, the most favored 
the most favored of Jacob, the son Joseph, who we read about in the very end, sections of the book of Rishit, the book of Genesis. Joseph, we know famously, is both the victim and the savior of dreams. He is both the person who is terrorized by his dreams and he is liberated by his dreams. How so? Joseph, we know early on as a brash, naive, conceited person, shares the dreams of his eventual, eventual dominion over his older siblings, which causes them to be angry and violent to him. We know that later on that Joseph's dreams and his ability to understand dreams frees him from the prisons of Egypt, and then his ability further to interpret dreams are the things that enable him to achieve the power and dominion over Egypt and over the Pharaoh of Egypt himself because he solves the dreams. In other words, the dreams begin in Joseph's life. They condemn him and then they save him. The power of understanding of dreams, and like I said in this week's Torah portion, it is the end of the dreams, really, for the remainder of the Torah. We hear no longer, effectively, of people having dreams. And the question is why? And the other question is what importance do, do, do dreams have? And so on this morning, with the brief few moments I have, I want to share some thoughts on dreams. And just an aside, and that is, it is not an all unusual that in the, polar, in the polar elements of our lives, the dreams have remarkable pulls. When you are a child and when you become elderly, it is not all unusual that people in geriatric wards, that they have great difficulty in distinguishing between their dreams and reality, which is something that children also are also affected by. How so? If you have a child who wakes up from a nightmare, they often can't shake the feeling of the nightmare because they believe it's real. And the same thing is true when they have a good dream. They feel enormously happy. And so the blur, so to speak, that we feel on the power of dreams at the beginning of our lives and the end of our lives, it's something that I would argue that we lose in the middle of our lives. It's not that we stop dreaming necessarily in the course of our lives, but the attention that we pay to our dreams diminishes over the course of our lives. Okay. When you actually think about dreams, we understand that there are two great ideas that dominate how people think and live in this world. And in fact, the greatest expressions, which are also not surprisingly found in religion, and not surprisingly found in Judaism, the two great expressions of these two ideas about how we understand life are by two enormous philosophers. One was Moses Maimonides, the other, perhaps lesser known, was a rabbi named Yehuda Halevi. They both lived about a thousand years ago. Maimonides was a rationalist. What's a rationalist? A rationalist is someone who says that if you can't explain it, it doesn't matter. That everything in life must be filtered on some level through our rational capacities to deduce and understand things. That if I can't explain it, then really I should ignore it. 
The other side of it is Yehuda Halevi. Halevi wrote an enormously important book called the Kuzari. And Halevi argues in the entire book is an element, the story of a dream. And what does Halevi argue? Halevi argues that there are certain things in life that the rationalist part of yourself can't explain. And, but just because you can't explain it, it doesn't mean that you should ignore it. In fact, Halevi argues that there is an entire scope of human wisdom, of knowledge in human life that in fact should be embraced by the things that you can't explain. When we talk about dreams, what are we fundamentally addressing? We're addressing that there's an element, a part of our psyche of our lives that are not subject to our control. We don't dream, but dreams come to us. When we're in the most vulnerable, silent, quiet moments of our days and lives, a dream comes to us. It's not that, that we fashion them, but if you're open to it, the dreams can fashion you. The Talmud has a beautiful expression idea. It says that a dream is an unopened envelope. And what is that suggesting? I mean, the, uh, the implication is very obvious. And that is that our dreams are silent messages that come to us. And not that we can understand each and every one, and not that each and every one needs to be explained or understood. But it's a gift on some level to appreciate that there is an ocean behind our minds that we don't control and we don't understand. But you shouldn't ignore it. The culture that we live in, by and large, is something that doesn't deeply appreciate what lurks deeper inside of ourselves. We talk about ignoring things, powering through things, about only paying attention to the things that we can touch and feel and measure. This is unquestionably, this is the victim of what it means to live in a consumer society. Because in a consumer society, in a consumer economy, the only things that matter are the things that you can consume. But Judaism, at the very beginning of its story in the book of Genesis, is telling us a different approach to life. And the approach to life that Judaism is suggesting to us, that there are things in life that you can't measure and you can't buy, things that you can't consume, but these things can enormously enrich the quality of how you live as a human being. And there's an argument that Judaism makes over and over again. I would submit to you that Judaism is a strategy, an ancient, deeply written strategy that is meant to design how you function on a daily basis that you should not ignore that truth in any way. That there are things that we don't understand, but you cannot ignore. Or if you do ignore it, you do it at peril of your life. The foundational story of the Jews is the story of dreamers. And I think you would all agree with me that the continuing story of the Jews throughout thousands and thousands of years has been the story of people who have also continued to dream. Because if you looked at the world at the way that it was, to play on the words of Shaw, 
we would have never imagined the world the way that it could be for us. But the last thing I wanted to share with you is a slight etymological game. It's a play on words. You see, in Hebrew, as perhaps you know, most of the shorashim, most of the root words in Hebrew are comprised of either two-letter or three-letter words. And so it is interesting to note that the word for bread and dream and war all share the same root. Bread is lechem. War is lochem. And dream is chalom, chalam. And so there was a famous philosopher who once suggested in saying that there are those people who fight only for their bread, but you're better off if you fight for your dreams. Shabbat shalom.